Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, this is, I think you will agree, a very um, a great episode of The Pillar Podcast because we are um, together. We are live in uh, a studio, if you will, recording this show. Are we not? Uh, yes. Yes. I am in sunny Denver. It is sunny here. Yeah, you are here. We're having a couple of meetings, and um, uh, we're having a couple of meetings for work. And so you are here, and uh, here you are. And um, don't cover for the government, JD. <laughs> we're having meetings, but the reason we're having the meetings this week, the reason I'm in Denver this week, is nothing to do with that. It's because I had to fly three time zones away to find a federal office that would give me an appointment to renew my passport. That is also true. You are also here because you had to um, you you had to renew your passport because you're going to Rome next week for uh, a different for for work. You're going to Rome next week for work because you're doing some awesome, very interesting and important reporting next week. And so your passport was expired, and you had to follow a very precise sequence of events to be able to um, well, re- renew your passport quickly. No, it wasn't expired. I'm not you know not a lunatic. <laughs> I would never let it expire, but it was right at the, the six-month limit. Yeah, but isn't it the same? You can't travel with a passport within six months of expiration. So isn't that the expiration? <sighs> I, do you know what I mean? It's I like do. If I, you can't use your passport to no, pass a port, no, 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 I know. What, is the, what is it for? Well, I was deceived. I deceived myself but through inattention because you know it, it obviously expires next calendar year, so I just kept like, oh, it expires next year. I'm fine. And then I realized next year is very soon. Um, but it, it's done now. It's done. And I had to book and rebook like five different things because you have to. <laughs> what in God's name are you doing? Sorry. We are practicing. We, uh, we, are, we are together. And so we're practicing with our soundboard for, um, you know, in two weeks we are having our uh, – our Pillar Dive Bar Baltimore live show USCCB extravaganza. And so we have to practice a little bit with our mixing board to make sure we've got everything all set for our mixing board. And so I just was just doing a few things to make sure that I'm ready uh, with the mixing board. Oh, my God. You can – this is a bad – no. This is going to be absolutely insufferable. I no, stop that. Stop it at once. Okay, so you had to rebook some flights. You, I did, your look, passport we, was expired, and so you, or not expired, but expired. So you had to come to Denver to get an appointment to get your passport renewed. It was amazing. You got a passport in one day yesterday. I was super impressed. But now you're here. We're doing a little bit of work. Make sure we're on the same page. Make sure that the pillars going well. Then tomorrow you're going to get on an airplane, go home. Then you're going to go to Rome, do some really cool, important, interesting reporting that I'm excited about for you to do in Rome. Then you're going to get back on a plane and um, effectively fly to Baltimore, and we're going to start USCCBing. Uh, yeah, it's that's gonna, a lot. It is. Oh, sorry, that one's not relevant. None of those. Stop. The, oh. you, you, you need to, you need to stop that now. You know what's going to happen is a lot of people are going to give podcast reviews like, I like when they talk about important church stuff, but I don't like when he presses the buttons on the mixing board. Yes, they are. And they're going to be right. <laughs> One of the reviews will be mine. <laughs> Two stars. Anyway. Oh, uh, so no, it is I, – yeah, I'm, I'm basically going to be on a two-week, two-and-a-half-week work trip from now going forward, which is fine. I mean I 
it's weird. I, I found that I'm actually, I think it's chemical, but I miss the child. Oh, you miss your children when you're away and you're surprised by that. Well, no, I mean, I... Uh, no, I mean, no. I mean, it wouldn't be. It would be an unusual thing. I mean, why, you know, that would be very... No, but I mean, the the the, the level at which I miss... You're surprised child. that you miss your baby. Yeah, well, no, I'm surprised at how I miss my baby. I expected to miss her at an emotional level. It did, but it's like I, I, I would like to hold my baby the way I would like to have a cigarette after an eight-hour flight, if that makes sense. Like, it is, there's yeah. a sort of chemical yearning yeah no i totally i totally get that i wasn't ready for that uh, uh, yeah i totally get that no i mean children are um they're addictive jd don't have a button for that one do you <laughs> i don't have a, i was trying to decide what my button was right for this strange train uh, that this conversation was taking but i've decided not to button at all that would be fine yeah okay good moving swiftly on okay well you're going to rome to do some stuff and uh, i suspect we can all surmise that probably your stuff is going to pertain to Vatican finance, and so that's all very exciting. I'm not saying. Yeah, okay. We're going to start talking in a minute about uh, a couple of church things, but before we do, Ed, a, a staple of, the, of our podcasting history together, we've been podcasting now together for, can you believe it, like five years? It does feel like a very long time. <laughs> we've been podcasting together for a very long time, and a, a, for a long time in our show, you used to talk about baseball. And uh, you don't talk about baseball that much anymore because I think you don't – you're mad at baseball or I don't know, some kind of bad thing. But it is the World Series, so if you want – I wanted to just give you the opportunity if you want because I care about what you want. Um, if you want to talk about baseball for a minute or whatever it is that you like to talk about with regard to baseball, I want to give you your, your moment. This is your, Step up to the plate is what I'm telling you. No, I got nothing on baseball. I, I hate the Houston Astros. They're unrepentant cheaters. I'm sorry that they're in the World Series and I hope they lose. Other than that, I got – I got nothing on that. Okay, uh, so then you're rooting for the Phillies. You're a Phillies fan. Phil, are you a Philly fanatic? Are you a Philly I'm, fanatic? It would be a mistake to say I'm. I'm cheering for the Phillies. Philadelphia is a hard city to get behind. And oh no! I mean, I don't know. I once saw this movie about this boxer from Philadelphia, and he was kind of a hard scrabble guy. You know, kind of came up rough, had some sort of rough friends, and a real, real nice librarian type girlfriend. And uh, I really felt like I. I really felt some kind of kinship towards him and therefore towards the whole city because he sort of trained. He ran up. And... Okay. So what I found interesting about Rocky. As oh, a... I meant Creed. Oh, Creed? No, I don't know what Creed's about. I meant Rocky. Oh, okay. I mean, I think Creed is a remake of Rocky yeah, yeah. effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the but the love interest is much more trendy and cool. Tell me what you found interesting about Rocky. What I've always found interesting about the Rocky thing is like the sort of uh, – stand-in sort of spiritual totem for the city of Philadelphia is the character of Rocky is nothing like your average Philadelphian. And oh, I, how no? Well, because Philadelphians are like hyper-aggressive and quite mean. Like they throw batteries at their own sports teams if they aren't doing well. I mean, Philadelphia yeah, is... Yeah, that's bad. I, I don't say this as a criticism. It's just a recognition of their character. And I mean, I like the city fine. Every time I've gone, they have more good dive bars per square mile than any other American city I've been to. So, I mean, there's a lot to like about the place, but they are not a warm and cuddly people. They are not, um, you know, a big-hearted, soppy, I-just-want-to-hug-my-pet-store-girlfriend kind of town. Oh, she worked in a pet store. Yeah. 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 I bet a lot of people would probably agree with you about that. Yeah. They're with you. We can't. They're no, with you. JD, I'm going to take it away. I am going to take it away. <laughs> no, you're not going to take it away because then you would need to know how to do it. That's true. I can't actually take it away. Yeah, but I really right. strongly want to. It's like just it's like disciplining a child. I, I don't actually have the means to enforce my will here, but I'm hoping if I... You know Stallone wrote Rocky while he was living in his car? 
I did not know that. Yeah, Stallone wrote Rocky while he was living in his car. That's a fact that I know. That's trying to sell it, trying to make it as an actor. That's cool. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I like Sylvester Stallone's sort of au revoir career arc as I've seen it. Mm-hmm. He's made some great movies. Yeah. He, apparently, he's a painter. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's okay. like a, a really sensitive, you know, oil on canvas kind of guy. Speaking of painters, Ed, uh, we are recording this podcast on Friday. The 4th of November. I don't know when it's going to come out, but we're recording this podcast on Friday the 4th of November. And today is a fee- the Feast of a Saint who, is, who, pro- who ought to be, I think, significant in the life of the Pillar, the Pillar podcast. Because uh, today is the, sa- the Feast of Saint um, Carlo Borromeo, or Charles Borromeo, if you prefer. Today, the Feast of Saint Charles Borromeo, um, a great, as you probably know, at a great reformer, uh, a great reformer in the life of the church. One-time Archbishop of Milan in the 16th century. Uh, counter-reformation figure, but but also someone who... Um, was he not a cardinal nephew? He was. He was a cardinal nephew, which is to say that he was made a cardinal by his uncle, the Pope. But this is probably the rare case, the exception that proves the rules, the rare case where that really turned into something great for the church, because Charles Borromeo... Oh, you take umbrage with that? I do. I mean, nepotism, which the church invented, hence the which comes from the, the position of the cardinal. No, I'm, you're laughing. I'm no, I'm not. I know. Yeah, the, the cardinal nephew. You know, nepotism, the, the favoring of one's nephew. Um, the cardinal nephew was an important role in the Roman Curia. It wasn't. I mean, yes, it was. It was nepotism, but it wasn't like you know, sort of. Oh, can you believe it? He's you know, yeah, his yeah, nephews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The popes needed a right hand cardinal that they could trust. That would be their sort of chief of staff that they they knew they could rely on. Who, you know, wouldn't be corrupt or in bad cases would be corrupt in exactly the ways they wanted them to be. Uh, and and so they had to appoint a family member, and so you you know you'd usually make your nephew a cardinal. Um, and uh, arguably, if we still had cardinal nephews instead of sustitutos, we maybe we'd be in a better position. Maybe we'd yeah, be hey, that's doing a very better good right now. That's a very good point. So, um, did JP two have any nephews? No, he didn't. I don't think so. I thought JP two was an only child. I, well, that's why I'm asking you. Is you're 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 a, more of a JP two biographer than I. Am. <laughs> that's a very that's a very 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 low bar. Um, John Paul II had a sister, Olga, who died in infancy, um, but uh, otherwise he was an only child because, remember, his mother uh, died when he was a kid. Oh, he had an older brother named Edmund who um, died uh, as well. Okay. Well, bummer. Yeah, okay. So um, to the point, Charles Borromeo, in addition to being the cardinal nephew, which was an important Roman curial position in uh, in, in the – counter-reformation period, um, was also himself a great reformer. And we care about this show. Our principal thing that we talk about on this show and our principal sort of modus um, interestante, the thing which we're interested in, um, uh, in, in the work of the pillar is governance, right? I mean, we, what we spend our time talking about and thinking about is the governance of the life of the church. And Charles Borromeo was a guy who cared a great deal about governance and a great deal about reform. He had an island with a tower. I did not know that. What was the island for? He had an island in the middle of a lake, and on the island there was a tower, and in the tower he would put priests who would not accept his correction. Oh. And they would be on bread and water and prayer and penance. Wow, that's really And they really would something. stay in the tower on the island until they were ready to conform themselves to... Until the, they withdrew from contumacy. Indeed. Wow, that's really something. Yeah. Yeah. I like Charles Borromeo. Yeah. And he made... He got seminaries. I mean, seminary formation at his time was not sort of sufficiently formational for having knowledge of the faith. I mean, seminary formation at his time was un- lamentably... It was more of an apprenticeship. Yeah, you know. in which one learned um, to mediate the mysteries, but perhaps without an understanding of what one was doing or without the kind of human and pastoral and spiritual formation that really equips one for such kind of work. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so Charles Borromeo really worked to ensure that seminaries were a place that would inform men or form men for a, 
a pastoral and ministerial priesthood as much as a, as much as the, the sacramental elements of their priesthood, and that they understood a nexus between those things. And he also he cared about clerical discipline, as you've pointed out, and and um, continuing education for priests, and um, and financial uh, more financial regularization in the Archdiocese of Milan, over which he was Archbishop. So a great deal of uh, of religious. Um, of sort of a governmental reform. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Where were you going with that? No, I just. Oh, you. I think he's a guy. For, no, I think Charles Borromeo is the kind of guy that right now. Charles Borromeo is the kind of guy that right now I think is a good model for the life of the church and for bishops. And one of the things that, you know, I've I've only read a little bit about Charles Borromeo, but a couple things strike me. One, and this is something that I want to talk about more broadly today. But one, it seems to me that sort of essential to his um, efforts towards reform were that he was not, and perhaps this comes from being a cardinal nephew, he, uh, we talked last time about Shepherd, or a couple times ago we had that Shepherd for CEOs episode in which we talked about that study. One thing that it seems to me was true about Charles Borromeo is that he was willing to own his office. He was not um, uncomfortable with having, with bearing the authority of being the Archbishop of Milan. I, I think that is fair to say. Yeah, I mean, for heaven's sake, he had an island. He had an island. Yeah, and, um, and th- but that is a lesson I think that is often, you know, we've talked about that on the show before, that... Um, there is today, I think, because there's a sort of general for a generation. It's not. It's not. I don't think it's as true for our generation or for people younger than us. But um, for there's a generation which is sort of by its very sort of cultural nature anti-authoritarian, and therefore, you know, like we don't want the man telling us what to do and whatnot. But therefore, uncomfortable often leaders, people in leadership often uncomfortable with the, their own authority and being uncomfortable with your own authority is, I think, one of the things that leads to its poor exercise. I would absolutely agree with that. I, what I find funny and have found funny is reading um, synodal reports, as we do these days, um, <laughs> that there's there's a lot of sort of talk in the reports about clericalism and hierarchy and, you know, the criticism of the, of the very idea of hierarchy in the church. But but it seems to me that the there is a sort of new younger generation that is actually more pro-hierarchical than the hierarchy in in many circumstances, which I find slightly funny and ironic. And what I found interesting is reading some of the synodal reports and some of the commentary on synodal reports is it sort of wags its finger, particularly at seminarians often, for mm-hmm. being for being hierarchical. Yeah, and, right, exactly. For, you know, for being too invested in the hierarchy. Like, does anyone else see the, the weirdness of, like, chastising people who have no place in the hierarchy? For being hierarchical, like, do you think maybe that should be that, that there's a there's a deeper point being made there about I don't know the divine constitution of the church as it was instituted by Christ as a hierarchical thing? Um, I, I just find it very funny that it's like you know telling people who have you know seminarians famously have the right to a Christian burial and that's about it, um, and and to sort of see as I have the sort of public finger wagging at seminarians like well you. You privileged authoritarians, how right, very exactly. dare you? It's like, it's like, no, they don't get to decide what they're going to eat. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a good point. And I'm glad you raised it because I've been uh, – the other thing I was going to say about Charles Borromeo is humility. Mm. Um, that he he was um, – he, he, it seems to me that part of his leadership approach was um, leading his presbyterate by virtue of his own humility in ministry. But that's necessarily there's, – there's true humility and there's false humility, right? And true, and, and true humility – which begins with a sort of recognition of what God has given one and uh, and where God has placed one. Um, for a bishop, it seems to me that true humility necessarily kind of like is tied into this notion of owning one's office, right? That mm-hmm. um, a person who is humble is able to say, God has put me in this office. 
I have to carry this office. I have to exercise this office. I have to be the father in this family, right? Yeah. I, I, and that requires restraint, yeah, dignity, right? Leading by example, yeah, not touching the soundboard. I'm not... Stop it. I'm keenly aware of my own shortcomings. I'm keenly aware of my own failings. But nevertheless, I mean, this is true for any parent, right? Nevertheless, God has put me in this author- in this position, and I have to exercise the authority with which it comes. Lacking that kind of humility to see God has done this or that in my life, the Lord has called me to this or that, right? But sort of having the sense, I've done this on my own. I mean, you know, That actually, I think, can lead to more insecurity about the exercise of authority, more insecurity about the possession of, of authority and, and, and good leadership than the kind of humility that says... Yeah, I'm going to lead by example. I'm going to recognize my own sinfulness, but I also um, can recognize that God has asked me to be the father to these men in one way or another. And yeah. I must do it. Yeah, okay. So I have been thinking, Ed, we're going to move on from that, because I have been thinking about the synod on synodality. And... Um, no, stop that. No. I have been thinking no. about the synod on no. synodality. No. And... That might become a thing. Say synod on synodality. No. Just to come on. Kate, why did you give him this? (laughs) I have been thinking about the synod on synodality, Ed, and I have been thinking about – I want to sort of go – say again what I think is true, which is that synodality, the the notion of coming together – we talked about this last week – the notion of coming together to pray – to discern the will of God in, in within the framework of the, the church or within the framework of the family, but like truly within and accepting and, and loving even that framework, the notion of bringing people together to, to pray and discern the will of God is a good and important and beautiful thing, and I, and I would like more of it. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, to the extent that the synod on synodality, the global synod on synodality is going to encourage that, you know, inculcate sort of a disposition towards that is a very good thing. Yes. Whatever else we've said about sort of how the process has gone, I think that is a very good aim. I would also say that um, I have noticed, and I've sort of, I think I've mentioned this to you before, I've noticed that there, one of the dangers to actually sort of incorporating this notion of coming together to pray and, 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 and to discern the will of God commonly in, in the life of the church, one of the dangers to it is that synodality becomes something which is thought of only very superficially in the church, that it becomes sort of thought of instead of like, this is something which is a part of the Christian life, and I ought to, in whatever my position is, I ought to sort of aim to integrate this more deeply into the life of the church. There's a danger that it just becomes this sort of superficial thing where it's like, well, the Pope wants us to do this one process, and I'm going to do this process, and I'm going to jump into it. There's also a danger that, uh, you know, I'm going to do this one process, and then bam, we're done with it. There's also a danger of um, becoming so, and I've seen this, like we talked last week about some of the organizers, the Relator and others of the organizers of the Synod on Synodality who are saying now, like, the only way to understand the Church. You cannot understand the Church. You cannot think about the Church if Synodality is not central to your concept of what the life of the Church is. Synodality is the only paradigm through which we can experience the Church. There's a degree to which this notion that we come together as common Christians to pray and discern the will of God, yeah, is sort of central to the Christian life, to be sure. But since we've only been using this term for the past, like, five minutes— there's a degree to which it becomes – it seems to become inauthentic when, when it becomes so centralized in the conversation that it's not – we integrate this into our broad understanding of the Christian life, but we almost – to the exclusion of all else, this is the sole means by which we talk about the Christian life. Well, the, and I see that kind of coming in Rome a little bit, and I think that actually is an impediment to the process. When I hear the Relator General or others sort of say, the only way to think about being Catholic is synodality, it's like, no, no one is going to believe that because everybody knows we didn't used to know that word. And so um, rather than say, I invite you to sort of think more deeply about this thing and pray more deeply about this thing, say, you're, you're doing this or you're not, it undermines the 
plausibility and authenticity of the thing itself. Well, it's uh, look. I have poked some fun at the synod and synodality de- over the last two years or however long it's been. Um, but again, like you, I I know what the word synodality means. Unlike many of the organizers, I've read the the actual document from the CDF defining it. Um, I like real synodal processes where they where they have been convened, where they take place. And we've talked before, before the Synod on Synodality was happening, we were highlighting where um, diocesan synods were happening in this country and where they were, you know, they, they were doing what synods do. Yeah, there were dio- a number of diocesan synods sort of all, already underway when the Synod on yeah. Synodality was announced. But what I, what I perceive in the way that people are talking about the synodal process now and what you were saying about, you know, there's, there, there is only synodality. It is the only way in which you can speak about or understand the church. It is the only paradigm. It, it's very Orwellian because it's, has, it's this sort of historically nihilist. There is nothing that came before. And at the same time, the pre, there's only the present. At the same time, the present has always been. Right. You know, it's that we've always been at war with Eurasia. Right, exactly. You know, right. We've always been a synodal we've, church, and also nothing before now has ever been synodal. That's right. Now we are bringing—I mean, I, we've heard this from lots of people. Now we are bringing back this notion of synodality, on the one hand. We are bringing to the fore this notion of synodality that has long been dormant. On the other hand, the only way to, quote-unquote, be church is to be synodal. Okay, well, so just, that's there was no being right? of church. Yeah, that's totally inauthentic because years. what it means is there was. Yeah, that's right. Uh huh. Yeah. But that's what they. That's what I mean about being historically nihilist. Is I honestly believe that a couple, a fair few of the actually believe that. I don't. I don't. I think it's just mostly. This is what I want to talk about. Why? Why do we have this phenomenon where a good thing becomes talked about in a way that makes it hard to believe in its in its veracity and hard to believe in the veracity of what people are saying? And and in the church, I think there are a few kind of reasons for that. One of which is just that I think it is commonly the case that um, in recent decades, and I, I can't speak to this, like, I, I don't know how historical this phenomenon is, but it is commonly the case in my observation in recent decades that the kind of central theme around which a pope seems to be organizing his ideas or um, catechesis or homilies or whatever at, at a particular time or organizing his efforts, um, and the and the word that comes along with that becomes used not just in a way that we, okay, we're going to integrate this in the life of the church, but it just becomes a buzzword that is a sort of a mark of, oh, I'm on the same page as the Pope, I'm speaking the language of the Pope. See, the Pope says synodality a lot, I say synodality a lot. And that can be even unconscious, but it becomes a thing where that, the thing, the danger is the thing becomes reduced only to a slogan that's meant to convey sort of conformity with um, with the leader, right? And and that undermines, I think, the, the, the possibility for a sort of authentic integration of... Um, new or resurgent ideas um, or an emphasis on ideas um, into the life of the church because it, it... Yeah, but I think for a lot of people, they actually view the synod on synodality exclusively through the lens of, well, conformity with the leader is what this is all about. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of people, too. I think that you're right, and I think there are a lot of people, too... You know, this isn't consultative. This is about everybody getting in line. And I think there are a lot of people who are skeptical of the synod on synodality or downright critical of the synod on synodality for precisely the same reason. They say, well, all this is is an exercise and sort of... Um, conformity with the leader or telling them what they want to hear. So I won't believe in its integrity at all, right? So there are people who are reflexively rejecting it or sort of um, perceiving it only as an exercise in conformity with the leader. And neither of those is healthy. But both of those, it seems to me, comes from this tendency, which is a very human tendency, to kind of um, adopt the language of 
a person in authority to sort of demonstrate our conformity to them or, or in some cases to reject the language of a leader to sort of demonstrate our dissatisfaction with them. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? And that has gotten me thinking that idea, which I think, again, makes it harder in a certain way. The, the excesses of that on both sides actually make it harder in a certain way for people to evaluate the thing itself, synodality, in, in its own sense, in what is actually being proposed, rather than the sort of diffusion of the term as a kind of sociological phenomenon in the church. That, I think, to some extent, has something to do with the modern expression of the papacy, the way that we think about what it is to be pope right now and the way that we respond to the person of the pope in the life of the church today. And I want to talk about that. You have your finger up, so maybe you want to tell me something. I was about to say, what's, how long have we been going? Do we need to no, do a I commercial? Want to, yeah, no, I want to talk about that. This is my teaser. I was really kind of uh, like, this is my teaser. I want to talk about that right after this word from our sponsor. Nice. Nicely done. Stop that. <laughs> Ed, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by The Saint Maker. It's a one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner that aims to help you reignite your faith, succeed in life, and experience real spiritual freedom. Yes, and centered on Catholic wisdom, backed by modern productivity sciences, it is geared to help you focus your efforts, to, to create a sort of new habit of mind and of living. And, and I like this. I, I like this idea. I'm – okay, so here's – full disclosure, I have had many attempts at using sort of – A planner. A planner yeah. of some type. And, and it, I need – basically I need a planner to keep me in the discipline of having a planner – um, because it is helpful to have these things and it is helpful as a sort of mechanical discipline to keep me organized because, as you know, I'm very disorganized. But what I like about this is it is, you know, the idea of a discipline in prayer, a discipline in study, a discipline, you know, that it, it's not just a question of a practical discipline to keep your life more organized, but it is actually oriented towards building new and good and virtuous habits. And I like that. Yeah, I think that's right. It aims to draw not only from just everybody needs to have something that keeps them going to their appointments on time. I mean, you can't live an adult life without having something that helps you make sure that you do the things that you need to do at the times that you need to do them. Um, but the Saint Maker aims to do a lot more than that because, as you say, it aims to provide a space for an examination of conscience, for setting goals in the spiritual life, for being thoughtful and intentional about having regularity in prayer life at the same time that it aims to help have, you know, be sort of have fru- a fruitful day in whatever your sort of vocational work is and, and your family life as well. That's right. I mean, thousands of people, I am told, and I have no reason to doubt it, are already using the Saint Maker. The reviews are very good of people who have spent time living and using this in their daily lives. Yeah, I've checked it out. I mean, I think it's very, very cool. And here's the deal. There's a free trial offer. So with the Saint Maker's free trial offer, you can try it out 90 days risk-free. If you decide it's not for you, you return it, get a free refund, including shipping. So perhaps if you're going to return it, the last thing that you write in Saint Maker Planner is return Saint Maker Planner, which enters you into some sort of Saint Maker Planner loop? I don't know. But Met- metaverse? Metaverse, right. Okay. But I don't think you're going to want to return it because it's pretty cool. Um, and also, if you listen to this show, you can learn more and you can get 10% off your first Saint Maker by visiting thesaintmaker.com slash pillar and using the promo code pillar at checkout. You go to uh, saintmaker.com slash pillar. And if you use the promo code pillar, you get a 10% discount today. And we're back. And uh, we were talking about the synod on synodality, and we were talking especially about the way in which um, 
the word synodality has become in the life of the church something not exclusively, right? I mean, I genuinely think there are a lot of people who are taking the synod on synodality seriously. I think there are a lot of bishops who are trying to do what the church has asked them to do and are hopeful that the results can be helpful. I know bishops who say, yeah, I don't know exactly what's going to happen with this in Rome, but the whole thing has been helpful in my diocese and I've learned a lot about my people and all of these things. So, um, so that's true. But at the same time, there are ways that Certain people have talked, begun talking about the synod on synodality, which are, as you say, sort of ahistorical nihilism. There has only ever been the synod, and there will only ever be the synod, and um, and that's confusing. And there's a danger that there's a danger that reducing the notion, this notion of synodality, which is a you know a real Christian idea, um, to a kind of a slogan or a kind of buzzword or a kind of shibboleth of authenticity to the of of, of loyalty will undermine um, the possibility of its genuine sort of long-term and fruitful integration into the life of the church. And that's not new. There have been other good ideas, which I think, if you look at the way that they've been used, have sometimes been, um, in addition to being good, real, and true things, reduced to sort of slogans in the life of the church, right? So, you know, Benedict, right before he was elected, starts talking about the dictatorship of relativism, and suddenly everybody everywhere is talking about the dictatorship of relativism, and um, you sometimes would hear some bishops talk, especially in Rome, but elsewhere as well, you'd hear some bishops talk, and it would be like they'd be talking to you about, um, you know, just the, working with their finance council on approving next year's budget, and somehow dictatorship of relativism would get into the into the conversation 15 times, you know, and yeah. um, before that, I think it's true that the notion of the new evangelization is an extremely important um, notion in the life of the church, and a good paradigm through which to look at the church's mission in certain parts of the world today, and at the same time, there was a period during the John Paul papacy where, um, you know, you couldn't blow your nose without somebody asking if that was a new evangelization, right? It was just yeah. sort of became, becomes a thing which is reduced only to a slogan without a sort of deep and meaningful reflection on the thing itself. And part of what I'm saying is, you know, that's a danger of, you know, has undermining the authentic integration of the thing, but it also, you know, oftentimes these kinds of phrases become just sort of slogans of institutional loyalty. And I think this exists in dioceses too. I can think of dioceses where the bishop comes in and he has a certain kind of vocabulary, a certain way of talking about the life of the church, and bam, suddenly everybody is using that kind of vocabulary. It's very natural. But it's to some degree, I think, um, and historians may tell me I'm wrong, but I think to some degree this is more prevalent in the life of the church today because of the way that the papacy has been lived and expressed in the last 40 years in the life of the church. You know, I admire Pope St. John Paul II tremendously. For heaven's sake, he's got the word saint in his name. I think that um, his his personal charism was extremely meaningful and impactful. And if you had the experience of being in the presence of John Paul II in his capacity as pope, you have the sense that you were in the presence of someone who um, was close to God and who loved you and who wanted you to be a saint and was sincere in his evangelical kind of character. But John Paul II was also, um, by virtue of uh, television, um, by virtue of inc- an incredible sort of technological and communi- telecommunications revolution in his, in his papacy, the first kind of celebrity pope. It's not that other popes weren't known around the world, but the first one where you'd say like, well, I-, I think, we'd say like, wow, there's a person who's like a big international figure like the Dalai Lama or a president or something like that. And and that there's a danger that I wonder about is has the way in which we see the papacy now as the pope as this sort of protagonist of world history has it changed the way that we relate to the pope as the steward of the mysteries of God so that the sort of pope and his agenda we start to view the pope as a kind of a political figure or a sociopolitical figure rather than viewing him as 
again, the Bishop of Rome and the sort of steward of the mysteries which are bigger than him in an office which is bigger than him. I think you're partially onto something. I'm, I might not be. It's just something I've been wondering about no, lately. No, I, I think you're partially onto something. I, I, I don't think it's that JP two was the first celebrity pope, and I don't think it's that he was, he had a particular or unique or um, even even sort of historically relatively so uh, role in elevating the papacy to a point of you know an, an international reference point on the world stage. I, I I think he was all of those things. I just don't think it was an innovation from him. I mean. The Bishop of Rome has always been a celebrity. The Bishop of Rome has always been a, a pole in world, world affairs. Um, and, and yeah, that's true. In the further back in time you go, um, the more the more central they were to how to to, to political affairs, right? Yeah. But but I think one of the I, so I don't know that I agree with that. What I do think is true of JP two and what he did do that was very different was he his his pontificate was largely perceived and lived and focused through his own personal narrative mm. that it's not that he was you know the first pope to really you know take the office to the to the you know international stage i don't think that's true but he was the first pope who was he he was kind of, you know he took the name John Paul II but he was it mattered that he was Carol Wojtyla mm-hmm. yeah that he never stopped being Carol Wojtyla while he was pope that it mattered that he was from Poland that it mattered that you know he had the personal narrative and history that he did that 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 informed his entire pontificate that it um you know everything he did you know to bring down the iron curtain to you know to to to, to try and um, nurture and guard and eventually unlock the faith uh, in 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 his own country and in countries of Eastern Europe, things like that, that that was all central to his identity as Carol Wojtyla, and I think that is something that was different. And that's kind of what I mean by celebrity, is right? As a celebrity, what what we that the Pope becomes this sort of it, it's not the he church wasn't or the a office, we. It was, he was an I. He wasn't a we. It was an I. We, I was, we were talking about that just yesterday. That the Pope, that John Paul II, stopped using the the we, and I, I want to come back to that. But he was framed in that way. He was seen as this figure himself, rather than the office being a sort of significant player in world affairs, this man, right? And I think incredibly – John Paul II is incredibly inspirational and important for my life. I don't want to undermine that at all. But I do wonder if the way in which his centrality in the world story, coupled with the telecommunications revolution, which he became very personal and very immediate, changed the way that we see the papacy and changed the way that we think about – Popes having like an agenda, right? Rather than the Pope's job being the principle of unity, we I wonder if we begin to think about Popes having like a sort of agenda as would a political leader who's elected to a term of office or something like that. No, I think that is true. There's and another – well, I was saying I think you can definitely see that in in JP2's papacy and I think you, you do also see more clearly now. I, I don't know that this hasn't always been the case but I do think there's a wider – and this is – this is, as you say, a function also of our uh, of the of the immediacy with which we all as Catholics now um, view the view the papacy. Because you know, a hundred years ago, you you couldn't watch the Pope on television. You couldn't read what he said on the internet. You had to you know you had to read it in your local diocesan newspaper more often than not. And you know, you could see pictures, but it's not the same thing. You didn't feel that sort of immediate personal proximity that we we do now. Um, but definitely, you could say that Benedict and Francis are both popes who were elected with 
mandates. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Like there was a there wasn't. I'm not suggesting that they you know sort of ran on a platform, but when they came out of the conclave, there was a fairly explicit understanding of this is what they were elected to do. Well, and I don't even know if that's unique, but something. I, and I, was I don't know about, if it's unique, but yeah. it's much more. It was. I think it's much more overt and universally understood now. And something I was thinking about last night is that this is something for the church to work out in the current age because the loss. Part of what we're working out is what is the papacy after the papal states, right? Um, because when you say the Pope was a major player in world affairs, you know, um, prior to the unification of Italy and the loss of the papal states, that had a lot to do with the Pope's temporal authority that the Pope was a significant temporal authority in Europe and in in a diplomatic world. The loss of the papal states brings to the fore the the spiritual ministry of the Pope's office, brings that to the – makes that – Brings it back. The papal states were never intended as – you know, even if you buy into the sort of donation of Constantine and all that, um, the, the purpose of the papal states was never so the Pope could exercise temporal power. The purpose of the papal states was it was a guarantee that no one could exercise temporal power over the to- Pope. Totally understand. Totally agree. All yeah. I'm saying is absent the existence of the papal states, the centrality of the, po- the spiritual ministry of the papacy is more pronounced and more self-evident because it is the, the, the singular thing at the moment, right? right. And, uh, and because it is the singular thing, there's a question of working out, especially because we can see the Pope so concretely – uh, you know, it, vis-a-vis telecommunications, we can hear from the Pope so easily. Can, is the Pope the world's pastor, right, which is the role that I think the papacy has sort of evolved into? And if the Pope is the world's pastor, it means a great deal about sort of him personally in relation to the Catholics of the world. Or is that a, a version of the papacy – is that the version of the papacy that's expressed in the in the – Theology of the Church and the living history and the and, and the history of the Church and the tradition of the Church, um, or is the papacy much more a principle of unity among pastors in in various places? And if that's true, it sort of it would seem to me would call for a more restrained kind of um, role for the Pope than has been the case for the last forty years in 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 uh, on many fronts. And I don't know the answer to that, but it does seem to me that there's this central question right now about is the Pope the world's pastor? Um, or uh, is he mostly the Bishop of Rome and the principle of unity among the College of Bishops? I'm disappointed in you for for, for posing that question and saying that you don't know <laughs> the answer. I expect it better of you. The answer is he's both. Yeah, but— And he's defined as both in law. But is it fruit—my point is, is it fruitful for the for the papacy to be the thing which sets the agenda for the whole of the life of the church in the way that it seems to have? Again, the answer is both yes and no, and it's it, it, this is this is what requires wisdom and prudence and discernment in office, and you know, hopefully, why we all believe that you know, the Holy Spirit um, offers itself to to the Bishop of Rome to support him in his ministry. Uh, because sometimes, yeah, I think it is the, the the Pope is the sort of world's pastor and world's shepherd and can have a very profound um, impact for the good by behaving that way. For example, when Francis did that sort of universal benediction, yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, during the pandemic, that was that was fantastic, and he was basically being the parish priest of the whole world in yeah, that moment, right. and it was it was deeply moving for a lot of people, and I I think actually it led to quite a few conversions. Um, so, so there's that. Uh, on the other hand, and this is something we've talked about before when we were talking about um, the limitations of uh, global synodality in in the history of the church, because as as you like to say, synodality is not new. It wasn't invented in a lab two years ago at the Secretariat. We were having synods 
we're having meetings of the synods of bishops um, quite on the regular ever since the Second Vatican Council. And one of the reasons why the the old sort of cycle of the synod of bishops was it would go particular region, general theme, particular region, general theme, is because it's very, very hard to come up with a one-size-fits-all anything for a church that is global and as big and diverse as as the Catholic Church is. So, yeah, exercising the Petrine ministry in a way that is um, universal and immediate, which he certainly can, um, is not always easy and is not always, I think, helpful, but sometimes it is. And it's it's a question of prudence and it's a question of reading the times. Yeah. And, you know, maybe, well, I, I haven't seen this come up in the, in the synodal process. <laughs> well, the part of the reason why this doesn't come up in the synodal process is because nobody wants to talk about the prudent exercise of papal power when the Pope, when sort of the Pope that they feel theologically or or ideologically or sociologically or theologically aligned with is um, is in power, right? So nobody, there's a whole cadre of Catholics who don't want to sort of ask questions about restraint and the prudent exercise of the Petrine ministry when John Paul is, is possesses the papacy. And then there's a whole cadre of Catholics who don't want to talk about it when Francis possesses the papacy. Why? Because it would seem to be undermining sort of their guy, right? So it's very hard to have this conversation because, you know, a, a half or some segment of, of people will at any time be sort of feeling like they need to defend their guy and the actions of their guy or feeling like their guy, yeah, is, is under attack or, or something like that. And so the question, I think, needs to be removed from the personal and just asked, is the current paradigm of the role of the pope, the centrality of the pope in the, in the sort of so many of the pastoral ministries of the church a fruitful thing or not? You know, there's one part of me that thinks, well, maybe we ought to step back. But I think you make a very good point, which is to say that can only really be meted out in the practical moment, right, and in the particular discernment about the times and the person and the needs, et cetera. Yeah, but I mean, to your point, I do think it is it is true that if we are being serious about synodality and subsidiarity as sort of core principles of how how we want to, I'm not going to say be church because that is a stupid thing to say. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that one I'm going to allow. Um, but if, if this is the way in which we want to sort of be living ecclesiology right now, um, that would seem to argue for a more restrained exercise of the papal ministry. But, you know, again, I it's dealer's choice, really, because I think he's, I, I mean, the, the office of the Pope is defined as the visible source of source and sign of unity for the College of Bishops, which is important because the College of Bishops have an important role to play throughout the world because the diocesan bishop is the apostle for his diocese. And this is what the Second Vatican Council talked about a lot, which was when you have too central an exercise of the Petrine ministry. Actually, this is a good counter-thesis to your your entire argument that this has happened more and more in the last 40 years. Prior to Vatican II, diocesan bishops were treated as disposable branch managers by the Holy See, and it was considered that the Pope was the world's bishop. He was the yeah, bishop of every I diocese. Mean, yeah, and, prior to Vatican II, yes. Prior and then to the, Vatican the entire I, thrust of the Second Vatican Council was trying to pull back the reins in Rome a little bit and say, wait a minute, we have way over-centralized the church at enormous ecclesiological cost. But that's why I think, and I've said this before, that's why I think what we're still really doing, and what I'm trying to do is tease out and meet out the meaning of the First Vatican Council in the life of the Church. I, I, I oh, think I most of our you. arguments are not about Vatican II because va- the, the ecclesiological elements of Vatican II are effectively responses to 
you might say excesses, excessive interpretations of Vatican I or, mm. or, guiding, or guidelines or bumpers, if you prefer, a sort of bowling analogy for a, 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 an interpretation of, of, of the documents of Vatican I. But still, I think that this question about who the Pope is and how he exercises his ministry is the sort of uh, is a central question that we're still very much meeting out in terms of what Vatican I has to say about that. No, I think that's right. Although I also think that we should call this episode "Who Is the Pope?" because that'll be you know we'll get all sorts of <laughs> Sadie Vicente clickbaity. The Pope is the Pope, numbers. right? The Pope is the Pope. The Pope is Francis. The, Let us be clear. The, the Pope is Francis. Let us be clear about that, and uh, and let's continue to pray for him. Yeah, I just think that there is that the synod on synodality presents for us an opportunity. The way in which some people are talking about the synod on synodality presents for us an opportunity to think about the way in which we respond to. So the synod on synodality is very, very clearly an initiative of Pope Francis. You could say it's sort of Pope Francis's. People talk about it as sort of Pope Francis's magnum opus and the culmination of his papacy and all of those things. And all of those things. All the things that I just said are a way of talking about a papacy like an administration. Yes. Uh, talking about a papacy like like you would talk about, okay, what's the sort of pinnacle, the magnum opus of the Obama administration, the Affordable Care Act, right? And all the things that he was working towards were, you know, sort of reached their zenith in the Affordable Care Act. That's how we talk about administrations. We talk about papacies like administrations now. And, um, and we talk about these things like administrations, and so then you have bishops who sort of adopt the buzzwords in a very secular way. It doesn't mean they don't take it seriously, but it also means that there are secular and sociological phenomenon going on at the same time. And it just seems to me that we were talking about the papal we before. There is an element of the Petrine ministry in the way that we think about it and the way that popes have thought about it in which being pope, a central element of being pope is continuity, is is not, and this cuts into all modern papacies, is not, and I think popes have an awareness of this, but also there's a way in which celebrity culture and instant telecommunications challenges it and makes it more difficult because one thinks, I have to fill the void, I have a platform, I have to use it, these kinds of things. Whereas I think that a disposition of, 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 of Roman pontiffs throughout the centuries has been, I have to carry on this weight of this thing, well, you, which I'm a principle of unity, from my predecessor to my successor. And this office is bigger than me and I'm unworthy of it, and it's not about me. And the papacy has developed that's why you over take time, a all name. of these signs, right? A regnal name is a sign that the papacy has developed that it's not about me. And the pontifical we is a sign that it's not about me. We, the bishops of Rome, right? There's a continuity in we. That it's not me and my administration. It's my office, the bishop of Rome, which will, was here long before me and will be here long after me. And, and also the tiara, right? The tiara is a heavy crown, right? And it dwarfs the pope. The pope looks... Every pope looks heavy laden. You see a photograph or a portrait of a pope, he looks heavy laden by the tiara. And that, that's something significant that I think we can lose. In this is always the joke about Benedict XVI, that he didn't resign under the weight of office. He resigned it under the weight of vestments. Right, precisely, right? But there's something <laughs> to that. Alb and a Dalmatic and this But there's something chasm. to that, like that, that we can lose if the papacy becomes whose administration are we in right now? What are their initiatives and what are the buzzwords that I need to learn? It has taken me the a whole episode to get there, but that's what I've been trying to say is that we can lose this sense of the papacy as a thing which is not only a principle of unity among the bishops, but a principle of unity between the past and the future. No, I think that's right. And I mean, <clears throat> you're quite right about why we develop things like the royal we and the reignal name and everything. It's about the individual disappearing into the office, putting the office above their own personal identity. And I think we have seen since the Second Vatican Council, and you are right about this, and it really does start with, I think, JP two that 
we begin to speak about popes making the papacy their own. Right, exactly. What, than, is, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I agree with you. I, I that doesn't mean there aren't things that can't be done, that the person who's elected bishop of Rome, the only oh. thing he's supposed to do is have a heartbeat. He's supposed to look at the needs of the church and discern what he's supposed to do. But the question of narrative and the question of sort of a personal agenda and the question of, gosh, the papacy as a platform, those things are consequences. And anyone who would look at the papacy that way or if there is any way in which the perception of the papacy would be oriented that way by our modern telecommunications phenomenon and the culture in which it engenders, those things are very dangerous for the church. And that's not conservative or liberal. It's just a recognition that the cultivation of the centrality of, of me, my agenda, my brand, my itinerary for the thing, and my, leaving my mark on the thing is something which is which infects contemporary politics, affects contemporary, you know, infects contemporary journalism, affects all kinds of things, and the church is not immune to the danger of that reality. No, I that's think... all I'm trying to say. Is I feel bad that anybody who listens to the first half of the show is like, I don't know what this guy's talking about at all, but I think I'm hitting what I'm trying to hit now. No, I, I, I think you haven't. I think that's, I think that's well said. Okay. Um, we will probably not have a podcast next week because you will be in Rome. Um, and then when we come back, we will our very next episode will probably be our live show uh, from Baltimore. Um, I hope we podcast next week, me being in Rome notwithstanding, because I would like to have the conversation that we were going to have today and that we agreed in our pre-show powwow, and which we didn't talk about at all. And instead, we talked about something completely different. So. Okay. Well, I think next week it's possible that we'll talk a little bit about – if we have a show next week, I think Ed's going to be more jet lag than he realizes. But if, if, that, if that's not the case and we have a show next week, we'll give you a little more preview on the USCCB meeting, the bishop's conversation about faithful citizenship, and uh, we'll give you our predictions for elections. Uh, we're going to have a show next week. We're going to do those things. Yeah, we are. Yeah, okay. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, who is getting this week the final word. Trousers. Thank you.